Welcome to episode 40 of The People on Kei Chung 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are Margaret Wappler and David Earl. Margaret Wappler lives in Los Angeles and has written about the arts and pop culture for the Los Angeles Times, Rolling Stone, Elle, The Believer, The Village Voice, and several other publications. Her work has appeared in Black Clock, Public Fiction, and the anthology Joyland Retro. Her first novel, Neon Green, is coming out from Unnamed Press in July 2016. I do think of Neon Green as being a, a happy marriage, I hope, of, of theoretical ideas that are pretty distant in the background. They're not really up there on the, te- like on the text level, but they're there. And, and then also just compelling storytelling. David Earle is an artist and writer living in Los Angeles. He's also the co-director of Elephant Art Space, and that's here in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. I think there's a general, there's a tendency to separate, to say like, books are like that, but art isn't like that. Because art is an object that you go to look at. I mean, and I'm not saying anything new, but you know, you look at a work of art from your point of view. You go to the place, your eye goes to a different place than another viewer. So you are always creating the work as, as an audience member, as a participant. And I'm just sort of trying to make the most of that. Coming up later, we'll hear a short radio piece by David Earle called The Searchers, and we'll hear Margaret Wappler reading from her new novel, Neon Green. And we'll close out this episode with music by Chris Cohen from his new album, As If Apart. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Margaret Wappler and David Earle, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mm-hmm. So, Margaret, you have a book uh, coming out in July on Unnamed Press called Neon Green. And, David, your work oftentimes involves the book format. Correct. That is right. David and I like to joke around that um, I make books, I write books, and he destroys them. And, right. you know, basically, I've written this novel, Neon Green, um, that is set in the 90s and has a spaceship involved. You'll hear all about it. But David has a completely different relationship with books uh, where he's basically involved in deconstructing them and reshaping them and yeah. all sorts of things. Like, But literally in the book form as an intact object, often. Uh, and so the book itself is destroyed, mm-hmm. um, not just the contents. And um, so you're often taking like books that have already you're taking a book that's already been printed and you're right, cutting right. sections yeah. out and yeah so I mean there's uh, there diff- I have different approaches so there's the found object way and then lately I've been doing more where I actually create the book myself from scratch so um, this new uh, empty signs project is an example of that. Um, I mean, it's just a way to kind of get more control over the material. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And the Empty Science Project, tell us about that. Oh, yeah. So for a few years now, I've been taking photographs of signs. You know, this thing you've seen this, I mean, it's everywhere in the United States, but Los Angeles, a lot of 
stores will have a sign where the signboard itself is missing and it's yeah. just the frame of the sign. And I, I got really interested in those and I started to realize, I started to think of them as frames themselves. So like a framing device where the thing that you're looking through is the thing that is framed by the sign. In this book, it's a collection of those photographs and then I cut out the sign part, the, what is actually empty in the photograph, and it becomes a hole in the page. And so when you look at the book, all and it will probably be a limited edition hand cut. Uh, and so as you look through the book, you thumb through it, and every page has the hole where the emptiness of the sign is. And then you're looking through at the, you can see aspects of the other images. So you don't destroy you're, Margaret's books. I don't. No. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Literally, like you write that a book. Might be in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I'm, I think we, we work so well together is that you have just taken the burden of being a writer off of my shoulders. <laughs> yeah. So I and you know I mean you're, you've been committed to writing since you, you know since your childhood. Yeah. And I always thought, sort of felt like not a dabbler exactly. I mean I, Matt no you know Matt I know you from Cal yeah Arts. from writing in, yeah, in the writing sure. program, but I think I joined that I went into that program to um, it turns out just exercise myself of writing <laughs> like I, I still get to experience the pleasure of sometimes yeah you know, like absolutely well I also feel like I get to take advantage of your writer brain that's still mm -hmm. very much intact and yeah. very much at play and so I can say David what do you think of the scene and you know granted you'll you might say something to me where I'm like you don't get what I'm trying to do <laughs> but eventually <laughs> I um, like 90% of the time I really see like the wisdom of what you're saying and what you're pointing out and um, I think can I play that back this I'm going to take this segment when we when you know later when we have a, an argument about whether I'm right <laughs> yeah. and I'm just going to play it back it's true <laughs> and then I'll be like I never said that but I think also too you know David in his work is is considering narrative so much and and I, when i say that i mean he is telling a story and a lot of artists will say that or a lot of visual people will say that they're telling some type of story and it's a little bit of a catchphrase and a little bit of a cliche at this point but with david i think it's really true there is some kind of emotional narrative import into the work and so when i show him scenes that I've written, I feel like he is able to tap into and access the way that I'm trying to express something, you know, some kind of intention mm -hmm. um, that is to do to, with narrative, of course, you know, that you can you can suss out and, and amplify and help me yeah. make better. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny, though, too, because I, I, I also have like, in a way, a sort of fantasy art career in my mind, you know, where like I never went that path and I never mm -hmm. particularly wanted to go that path. But there are times where I look at visual work and I don't know, it's so like looking at your book over there that you've got the mock up that you made of the signs, um, the empty signs project, like. It, it just feels like beautifully simple and crisp, you know what I mean? It's not, and it's not belabored in the same way that writing sometimes feels to me. Well, so do you, I mean, I know you suffer through writing. <laughs> Anyone who works, you know, I mean, not, to, not yeah. to be cliched about it, but if, you know, working creatively involves suffering. Right. Um, I, I do want to say that I don't consider that a prerequisite. No. Some people do. Noted. 
Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Noted and but, ratified. Yeah. But no, I mean, the process itself is painful. Yeah. But... Yeah, it can but be. You it can also have, be very joyous. Right. Both. That's the thing. Yeah. I think you you have access to the to the joy in a way that like I just didn't. And and but do you do you ever find yourself, you know, wh- wh- when does when does that feel like it's just not happening? When do you feel like you lose the joy? Mm. Well, I I would say when I write a new piece. I mean, okay, let, let me just take Neon Green for example. Yeah. Like when I first started it, it felt really hopeful and full of ideas, and I was really excited about it. And at that point, I'm really just feeling like it's all full of possibilities. And then I wrote a draft or two or three or four, and then it starts to get into this sort of muddy middle place, which, I mean, I think all artists can relate to that muddy mm-hmm. middle place of, like, you have got enough of it down that you've committed to a certain path with it. So you can't just like strike it down, you know, to strike it down would mean to totally start over. And that's kind of a whole other burden. So you're in the middle of it. And it's like, how do I, how do I fix this? And how do I make it true to the thing that I have in my head? I mean, I always think about that with artists too. I feel like we all have the dream work in our Mm -hmm. head. Like, Oh, this thing is going to read like this, or it's going to feel like this. And it's going to make a reader feel these emotions. And I get really caught up in that idea. And then you start to realize that the book will just be what the book wants to be. Like, you know, you can control it to a certain extent, but But at a certain point you have to give yourself to what it wants to be right yeah yeah like you you see the path that it's cutting and you can either stand in its way or you can clear the path you know that's that ties into something we were talking about earlier to kind of incorporating the reader response theory Mm. idea you Mm. know that something that i think we are both interested in our work interested in in our work is the idea that the participant brings something to the experience and you know you you've written a narrative not a sort of traditionally based narrative novel, mm-hmm. but there still is at play this problem slash solution that the reader is going to imagine his or her own world. You're going to give them uh, your world and then they're going to superimpose their world over it. Yeah. And that just fascinates me. You know, yeah. like I don't do you think about that it, when you're writing? Are you sort of, you know, it's like an act of faith. You have to ultimately the reader has total control. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it in terms of mixing two realities that we know and don't know. Like in the book, uh, it's set in the 90s, but then there are spaceships in this version of the 90s. And so that's the 90s, of course, we all live through, but the spaceship part, not so much. Right, right. So, you know, the blending of those two fascinated me to, to, to land this giant unknown mm. into a very known time mm-hmm. um, that we've all experienced. And I think for me, it's really exciting to sort of juxtapose those together. I think often science fiction, and, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that Neon Green is like 100% science fiction. It has some of the DNA, but it's sure. not 100%. And it's um, borrowing that idea of science fiction, but contextualizing it into this nostalgic older period, as opposed to grounding it in a current reality or mm-hmm. even a future reality. And I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily interested in doing that because I, I really wanted to have a, um, a kind of contrast of warm warmth 
nostalgia, you know, even okay. childhood kind like of nine, feelings. Like the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that, like, you know, when one of the kids in the book is listening to Fugazi, like, yeah. if you listen to Fugazi too, you can have warm feelings in that moment. But then there's a spaceship that lands two seconds later. And, like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. What are those two things doing to each other and kind of bouncing off of each other? Right, right. But there's also some alienation, pun intended, I guess, uh, that goes <laughs> yeah. on with our distance from the nineties. Like when I was reading it and there's a very, there's a moment where the characters are talking about the internet Yeah, and it's a moment that could be really schlocky, Mm -hmm. you know, but you handled it really well. It's very sort of minimal Mm -hmm. of just like there's this new internet thing. And for me, that was, you know, that alienated me from that time, you Mm -hmm. know, where it's just like, Oh yeah, right. There was this whole time (laughs) when there was no internet, you know? So it does have that. It had those, the book had those warm feelings from the 90s, but also created maybe even more distance for me between myself and myself in the 90s. So it mm-hmm. did both, you know. Right. Because nowadays, like, we spend all this time, like, at night, you know, after you get done with mm-hmm. your work and you eat your dinner, you go and you futz around on the internet. You know, you go on Facebook and Twitter or whatever you're into. And in the 90s, we weren't doing any of that, you know. Yeah. Like, I, I... I don't know how many people would tell me that they were amazed by the teenage characters in this book spending all this time in their room, like, drawing. Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. what kids used to do. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I should say, too, just to explain a little bit about this book, just, like, in a really, like, basic plot sense, is that what happens in the book is that um, there's a family. There's a mom and a dad and two teenage kids, and they live in a suburb of Chicago, and a spaceship lands in their backyard and this is a common but not totally common occurrence in their world it happens some places sometimes but it's still a very tripped out thing to have happen and there's all sorts of different reactions in the family the father who is the staunch environmentalist is really freaked out by it he thinks it's going to be toxic and pollute the backyard that it's landed in Um, the mom is kind of weirded out by it but intrigued um, the son is totally stoked about it <laughs> and <laughs> you know he's yeah. like 16 years old this is like the most badass thing that's ever happened to him and then the yeah. daughter who's like 14 15 is like you know yeah it's cool she like kind of wants to agree with her older brother but she's a little bit like I don't know this a little is a creeped little, out yeah a yeah. little scared of it yeah. um, and it, and it sort of takes off from there um, the different reactions from the family and then something happens in the family um, that that ratchets up the situation and makes the dad feel like he really has to get the spaceship out. So it, it may or may not be related to the spaceship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we could say, without doing any spoilers, we could say that the spaceship operates like as a focal point for transference, right, for all mm-hmm. the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I think we talked off mic a little bit about it having similar qualities to the monolith in 2001, yeah. or I would say like the, the fog in a Eugene O'Neill play. Did I get that right, Eugene O'Neill? Eugene? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. The fog or whatever. You yeah. know, it's this external mysterious thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a big, you know, inspiring point was uh, White Noise by Don DeLillo, yeah. where there's kind of this white toxic cloud that moves into um, the city that the book is, is taking place in. And so there's a similar kind of symbology to it and a similar kind of of weight and heft of like what is this thing is it going to wreak havoc is it going to kill us is it going to lead to something even more unknown you're listening to the people on k chung 16 30 a.m 
Before we get back to our conversation, let's listen to a short radio piece by David Earle called The Searchers, based on a true story, which was produced for the 2008 Third Coast International Audio Festival. Hi, I need help finding a book. What book is that? Uh, I don't remember the title, but um, the author's last name is a first name. And the title is about a, it's a tree. Um, I, think it's, I think it's deciduous. Anything else like what the story is about? Or? There, there's this school teacher that faints because she has this town admirer and he, he, he urinates her initials in the snow. I think I think Hemingway liked this book. Uh, I, I I think the tree lost its leaves in the winter. I'm pretty. I, I I remember that being a big part of it. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Um, it's a really good book. It's I I wish I could. There was a Civil War veteran in it. I he makes he makes a house out of tin cans. I don't know if that's going to help. Well, let me see what's out there. Okay. Hold on. Thank you. Okay, what's the book? Uh, I'm afraid I don't remember the author or title. Okay. It had to do with a, a, a boy who, that uh, when he jams like pieces of metal into his braces, could pick up radio broadcasts. And at one point, in order to boost the signal, he bites down on a fork. Uh, at one point, I think a chain link fence, maybe even like a trailer hitch or something attached to like a big old aluminum Airstream trailer. And he finds out that... Uh, there are these um, fat aliens that are planning an invasion of Earth, and uh, their plot for world domination somehow involves potato pancakes. I ring a bell. I mean, kind of sounds like something familiar, but I can't really put my finger on it, you know? I mean, if you can maybe think of something close to the title, or... No, all I remember is red, happy tooth, fat people, potato pancakes, braces, chain link fence, radio, yeah. That, that's all I remember. Can we put you on hold real quick, okay? How can I help you? I'm looking for a book. Okay, go for it. Might have had baby in the title. Okay. <laughs> Story of a bunch of young girls who are on a cruise with their family. Okay. The cruise ship is going to go down, and they land on an island. There's two sisters, and then these three babies, and they have to kind of live on hardtack. And, um... They meet a man on the island. He's sort of grumpy, but he's, he has something. He's missing a big toe, I think. And at one point, I think they see a stork flying overhead, something like that. Uh, Baby Island by Carol Brink. 12-year-old Mary Wallace and her 10-year-old sister Jean survived the wreck of an ocean liner on its way to Australia and managed to make it to a seemingly deserted island in a lifeboat with four babies. Hmm. That doesn't sound like it. Thank you. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll call my mother and see if she can remember it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Well, okay. Let me ask you. I'll ask you a question about just like putting that piece together. Good. Okay. So, how did you put that piece together? What gave you the idea? Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm really I've I just I love the way people talk about childhood books. It's so interesting to hear, and you know, there's that experience that we all have. Where there's like, you know, when you're a kid and you read or books are read to you, it's so profoundly moving and in a way that you almost can't recapture as an adult. But then the thing that's so great is that that memory, if it's intense enough, 
will stay with you. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the impetus for it. I wanted it to, I wanted to tap into that uh, kind of, you know, I don't know that that like atavistic weirdness. Mm. Um, and but I also and I realized that there's no better way to do this than just to get people to literally relate a story that they remember, a book that they remember. Um, but so each of those people were remembering a book. Yeah. So the way so I, the way I did it was um, I asked people, I called people over the phone, I asked them to describe a childhood book they remember, but pretend you can't remember the title. Everyone actually knew what the book was, mm. but just pretend you can't remember it and you're okay. describing. So I set up a scenario. Pretend you're calling a bookstore and you're trying to find a book. And then I recorded those and I had to to keep it to kind of make it, I don't know, verite. So I mean, that's pretentious. But you know what I mean? Like to actually keep the realness mm-hmm. yeah. feeling. I then would call um, bookstores and I, I pretty much took the plot points as the people made, laid them out mm. and then went through the same process with a person so i was so yeah. what you hear is the person the clerk you know responding to me but edited with the people mm. remembering their book it, it sounds really like like you didn't edit anything out so yeah, yeah that's why I mean, i'm like curious what was actually yeah. edited oh i don't know i mean it's it's been a while but you know it's just sort of you just do it it's just you know you you guys do this all the time it's yeah. just to make it seamless you know and a lot of the work went into just making it sound like the people answering the phone at the bookstores were talking to the people calling in. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was, so they it was weren't a lot necessarily of, talking to those people. They weren't at all. Oh, they're all pre talking to you, me. So that was wow. yeah. They were just playing the role, and then I was taking that as the basis for the. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a really fun piece to do. Do you but. see any kind of relationship between that project and any of the books, the cut-up books that you're doing now? Uh, the, I, you know, I think there's a really long-winded way to answer that question. And I'll just say that maybe it has to do with an interest in narrative, mm-hmm. but, but then filtered through other mediums that aren't necessarily thought of as narrative. I mean, there's lots of narrative radio, yeah, but... I, radio fascinates me as this thing that exists somewhere between story and something undefinable in a way like what we're doing right now the experience of hearing a voice yeah. a disembodied voice you know and w- what that does to the experience of a story I think is sort of like that too in a way ties back to writing fiction, I think, because... And specifically in Neon Green, I mean, let's talk about the character, the Sun character in your new book. Yeah, uh, yeah. That yeah. Uh, has a shortwave radio. Yeah. So Gabe, the, you know, 16-year-old son in the story, who's really stoked about the spaceship, as I mentioned before, he also listens, he's really into shortwave radio, and he listens to this show... Um, that is, you know, quite imaginative, and he doesn't really know where it's coming from. He can't really locate. The, the, the person that's speaking on the show never says where she's speaking from. She doesn't identify herself. She just sort of launches into these um, philosophical ruminations. 
And it's the kind of thing that he's longing for at that age, but he doesn't really have any other kind of outlet for it. And I would say that, you know, David's own radio work and um, preoccupation with radio and the way that it is this phantom voice and also the most present voice that you can Mm -hmm. hear in a sense. Like I I remember when I was in um, high school, sometimes I'd get like scared if I was like by myself in the house and the and the thing that could comfort me the most was turning on the radio mm-hmm. and just hearing a voice. Yeah. And to me there is something really striking and elemental about that that it just hits that like like it is just that voice is just talking to you. It's the like an intimacy. It's an intimacy and it's trust and it's security and so I really wanted Gabe to have that and um I feel like from your, you teach a class about radio at right. CalArts and you turned me on a lot to what radio can do. I think I was not really that steeped in it before, um, but through various kind of turns in my own life, I did become much more interested in radio. I mean, well, yeah. And you do such a, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. uh, you do such amazing things with radio as a device in the novel um, and without giving anything away, I think, because it's kind of not it's a subplot but um can you can you say what's that term that you dug up that's you have this um what's the name of your tumblr that you're starting oh um so i'm starting this tumblr to help promote the book but then also to be this kind of keeper of uh things from the 90s and ephemera related to spaceships and general kookiness <laughs> and um it's called the wow signal and the wow yes, signal that's... is from seti which is an organization that their whole mission is to look for um extraterrestrial intelligence and they have these giant dishes these um radio wave reading dishes on their landscape in, in northern california and there was this one day in 1977 where there was a giant spike in the radio signals that they received and nobody could figure it out and they called it the wow signal and a lot of them were like that's it that's that's the proof of alien life that's the wow signal there they are we're going to find them and they kept trying to search for it search for it search for it and and nothing really has come through definitively since but um I love the concept of there just being this giant spike in, in a radio signal, mm-hmm. which is like what really is a radio signal anyway. We don't really right. know. Well, it's, it's like, like yeah. a collection of electromagnetic waves and information. And now and, it's a way of actually charting the birth of the universe. Yeah. Know? I mean, not it, getting to, but like, yeah, literally radio waves. Yeah. It does feel like this at once simplistic thing that like we all listen to the radio. We all grew up with the radio. But then at the same time, it's incredibly deep and profound. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason I wanted to have it in neon green is because, you know, again, in this book, I'm interested in talking about, like, what are the mysteries out there? Some of the mysteries that we think are actually really ordinary. We write them off as incredibly ordinary. Um, And uh, I mean, this is just scooching over to another thing I do with radio, but Pop Rocket, which is a podcast that I got involved with, um, you know, a year and a half or two years ago now. Um, And I, I had no intentions of being on a podcast you know it just landed in my lap as a great opportunity um it's a pop culture roundtable with uh guy branham and winter mitchell and oliver wang who are all really intelligent thoughtful 
hilarious people and I I jumped into it because it was presented to me but I felt like it was all kind of uh, it was like kismet you know like it all happened at once where it was like I'm married to this man who's talking about radio and teaches radio and is embedded in radio and makes these amazing radio projects and then I'm incorporating radio into neon green and at the same time I'm doing a podcast look and at, then I'm and on then this look at this show now we're show now. where we are yeah, circle of life <laughs> <laughs> right I feel like um there should be like a Disney song playing now is it weird we'll edit that in um, oh, could, yeah, could you talk about that the 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 one of the shows on the shortwave that Gabe tunes into with the woman so early on in the book you see a scene where the daughter Allison and the son Gabe and and their dad Ernest are all listening to the shortwave radio and they're tuning around and Gabe lands on the station that is just crackling with static and it's got this whining high pitch and then after a few moments this woman's voice cuts in and she recites a series of names and the names are Anna Nikolai, Ivan, Tatiana, Roman. She just stops after each name and almost like she's waiting for one of them to call back. Like, here I am. And she keeps going with this call. She just repeats it endlessly. And I got that idea. The kids are really intrigued by it. They're like asking all these questions like, where is she from? Is she from Russia? Like, who are these people? Are they her children? They don't know. They're really intrigued by it. And I got this whole idea from an amazing article I, I read in Wired and that David had told me about as well, that there is there, there are these stations that are like lost broadcasting stations that basically um, repeat names or numbers or some kind of information that some people think possibly are linked to like Cold War codes, um, some kind of old communication form. And... Um, they're mysterious, you know, they're strange. Yeah. Nobody can track where they're coming from. So I, I that to me was an incredibly fitting thing mm-hmm. to wedge into the book of mm-hmm. like, there. here's this other element of life that is on the radio. It's so normalized in a sense, but it's incredibly shrouded in mystery. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we should talk more about Pop Rocket for a second. Yeah, sure. Okay. Where does the, the podcast like position itself? Because we're talking yeah. about radio as yeah. this certain thing. Yeah, okay. And the podcast is the is the, the child of radio. Yeah. And it's very different in a way that it's yeah. not, you yeah. know, it's not necessarily, well, it's not live, yeah. you know, and you can kind of just get it whenever you want it if you have a computer and the internet. Right. And so what what do you think the relationship between like the radio that we've been discussing and 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 a podcast specifically uh, Pop Rocket like where where's all that fall together? I mean, it's interesting about podcasts because in a way it's an old form, like it's just a radio show. It could be on in the 1940s in the sense of like what it is structurally, but it has taken over the Internet as a really cheap, fun accessible way to listen to other people talk about their opinions and insights on whatever it is that's going on in their life. And I didn't know much about it before I got involved with Pop Rocket. It was like, like, of course I've heard of podcasts, of course I've listened to some, but I didn't, I wasn't really that tuned into any of it. And since I've gotten involved with podcasts, Pop Rocket particularly, I've just noticed how many, there's just an explosion. I mean, it's this kind of huge, growth and way for people to connect that Mm -hmm. isn't um 
I don't know, that really is a simple elemental way of communication. Like I can listen to an hour long show of somebody talking about something they are thinking about or struggling with or contemplating and then I can reach out to that person maybe through Twitter or something like that and connect with them. And I think those are the beautiful parts of the internet, of course, that like you can reach out to people and you can create these artworks and disperse them in a really cheap elemental way. I think part of the appeal of podcasts that Pop Rocket um, really taps into, and I also think the people falls into this category. Absolutely. Is that, and this is something you can't hear on radio, except that you could, you can hear it and you used to be able to hear it all the time on college radio, maybe. It's like this, it's not, it's more free form mm-hmm. and it yes. has to do with people having a conversation yes. that's not highly edited, right? And it's the just stakes like, are pretty low in general. I mean, maybe not on the Maximum Fun Network because it's very well and very well organized. Yeah. But the, like for this show or for anybody who just wants to create a podcast, the stakes are, it's like forming a band or something. Like it's, the stakes are pretty low. It's totally the new forming a band <laughs> because you can set up a decent recording studio for Mm -hmm. like a couple hundred bucks it's not going to take you that much and the thing about pop rocket we thought about what were the other shows out there that are like us and there was slate gab fest and there was pop um i'm sorry npr's what is it npr's pop culture happy hour pop culture happy hour and those two shows are both phenomenal, but because they are coming through a corporate system and these are people that are working journalists, they have to obey certain kind mm. of rules. They can't mm-hmm. necessarily swear. They can't necessarily like bag on some actor that they might be interviewing in two weeks. And <laughs> <laughs> and on Pop Rocket, we do have this freedom. I mean, we all are working artists. You know, I am a journalist who might be working might be interviewing somebody that I bag on, but I'm, I'm pretty mindful about when and how I do that. But at any rate, like it's free, it's open. We get to talk about our real opinions. And that's something that's really precious to me about this show. Mm-hmm. Like I have no desire. I mean, every once in a while we get a critique from somebody that's like, you should edit out the ums and the likes and you should not have swearing. And like these, they want a more polished product. And and to me, I'm like, no way. The magic You're of like, it um, is that. Yeah. I don't um, like that like. idea. Fuck you. <laughs> exactly. Where it's like, this is the beauty of it is that we're yeah. completely unhinged. That's the magic. Yeah. Get with it. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. And if you're going to be in Los Angeles on July 12, 2016, we highly recommend going to Margaret Wappler's book launch for her new novel, Neon Green, out from Unnamed Press. Uh, the event will take place at Skylight Books in Los Feliz at 7.30 p.m. on July 12th. And the event will also include a conversation between Margaret Wappler and Pop Rocket co-host Guy Branham. If you haven't listened to the Pop Rocket podcast, you should totally check it out. Um, But right now, uh, let's hear Margaret reading an excerpt from her novel, Neon Green. The spaceship descends towards the home of the nuclear family, living in one of the psychic detritus clusters of the universe, otherwise known as the suburb. The utopian landscape is precise and ordered, a video game grid of school, park, church, houses, school, park, church, houses, school, park, church, houses, that gets more focused as the spaceship gets closer. 
The flying object cuts through layers of atmosphere, as delicate as filigree, made up of natural molecular ephemera and semi-noxious particles of clingy waste. The hairspray and the weed killer and the evaporated windshield wash and the fumes from a polyurethane glue used for a children's toy that is not recommended for below age 8. The top layers of the atmosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, the exosphere, is made up of garbage and noise, signals from appliances cross-hatching into a graphic density, slivers of metal from aircraft flying on the slipstream, burning lava rock and auroras that vibrate and hum. Closer to Earth, the troposphere is ransacked and violated by the phenomenon known as weather, clouds fattening with water that condenses, bursts and clatters down to the ground. The spaceship lowers through it all, leaving behind the moon, a pink scrape in the sky, to settle in the backyard of the Allen family. So jumping off of the radio discussion we were having, I wanted to say that the book that you gave me that was really inspiring was Radio Territories. Mm -hmm. And particularly in there, a chapter that was from Ligna, which is this radio collective that I I believe is based in Germany or somewhere in Europe. And they had this incredible, um, very direct radio address that they wrote. And the fact that they really managed to crawl into your ear and tell mm-hmm. you exactly what you're thinking and feeling as you listen to these voices was really inspiring to me. So that's what fed into the radio show that Gabe listens to in the book, which mm-hmm. is called The Book of Connections. Can you give us like a taste of the manifesto? Like what's just generally what the pitch is? Yeah, it was very like, hello, you are listening to the radio. What does my voice sound like? Like, it was very crisp, very clear. There was no kind of obtuse quality to it, no reading through it. It's, like, present. It's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's sort of a manifesto of sorts. And I, as I remember, it's a little bit about who owns the voice. Like, that was yes. part of the idea of dissemination of, you know, like, a voice on the radio belongs to the listener as much as it belongs to the speaker. And you can't, it's multiple voices. It's as many voices as there are radios tuning in at that time, at that one time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's sort of like a, I think it's like a very strong, big statement about just what the voice in radio is. Right, the voice being both a multiplicity and an individual voice. Right, right. I mean, this book is, uh, it, it's a it's a work of fiction. It's a novel. You know, yeah. it's very, it's very, and it's, it's very smart and it's very funny. Um, but it's like it's a novel, yeah. And so with with those ideas, like you went to Cal Arts Writing Program, you're you're pretty well versed in in literary uh, theory. Like, how did that stuff like end up in you doing like a, a pretty straight ahead novel? It's a good question because I feel like after I graduated from Cal Arts, I was I love Baudrillard most of all out of all the critical theory I ever studied. And the reason I like Baudrillard the most is because I think he's a fantastic writer. And a lot of the theory that was presented to us in CalArts, and I, maybe Matt's going to disagree, feel free to disagree, but I, I couldn't get into it as much because the writing itself was not always the most compelling. Mm-hmm. I admired the sure. ideas, but I couldn't always necessarily penetrate on the writing level. But Baudrillard was inspiring to me in that way. And so I do think of Neon Green as being a, 
a happy marriage, I hope, of, of theoretical ideas that are pretty distant in the background. They're not really up there on the te- like on the text level, but they're there. And, and then also just compelling storytelling that makes you want to keep turning the pages. That, to me, is the ultimate uh, happy marriage in a book. Like, I want there to be deep ideas and theory to a certain extent. But most of all, I think I just want there to be a sense of, like, compelling storytelling. And I think, I mean, we were talking about this a bit during the break, and there's this way in which going to graduate school, and this, you know, we were actually talking about it in the context, Ben, of, of your experience, but I think an important part of it is learning to take the form apart so that you can maybe put it together yeah. in a different way or put it together in a traditional way, but having taken, having exploded the form in the first place, I think is super is like very very helpful yeah and as we were just talking about on on the break a moment ago like the book does slide from one tone to the other right yeah yeah and i don't think i could yeah it shifts and i I don't think i could have done that without Uh knowing that you can do that right in a theoretical way like what does that mean to combine those two different tones or Mm -hmm. to have that slip like the genre you know, like, and this is like a publishing thing now. Like, how do you classify? And you know, right. some of it yeah. falls falls and into this the, is like, very slipstream. As yeah, they call sli- it. You yeah, know, it's yeah. It's not really sci-fi. It's not really literary. Or rather, it's both. Right. And that to me is exciting. I think that's going to happen more and more in literature. So I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Pinging off different genres. Just yeah. 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 Just using them thing. as jumping off points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not hanging your hat specifically on mm-hmm. science fiction or whatever. Well, because right? genre, I mean, genre is wonderful. It serves a purpose. I think it sometimes makes for the a very powerful stories that are very engaging, but it's also there to be fucked with. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the, thing that makes neon green so powerful i think is and this is something you guys were talking about like it sets up an expectation i don't want to give I mean, this is not a spoiler i'll do my best not to but it sets up a certain expectation for science fiction and then in certain ways it surprises it kind of fucks with that expectation mm-hmm. and that also in an interesting way ties into the storyline um there's a way in which the book is about i'm using this term now um by way of the people and Christina Andres on the people. Yeah, mm. friend of the show. Friend of, friend the, of show, the show, right? Longtime listener. First, first time, time caller. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> she talked about the ineffable in her work, and I loved her. I loved the way she described that, and I think it was a- absolutely right on. And I think it also applies to Neon Green in certain ways. And I, and I think, like, if I could make a stretch to tie it together, genre is effable (laughs) and margaret's book is ineffable i was thinking of affable and affable and genre splitting and hybrid hybridizing in terms of your book the open day book because Mm. i feel like you you went on this project where you basically asked an artist to complete some piece of artwork that they would send you every day so 365 days what year was this this was well it came out in 2010 but I spent most of 2009 chasing after these artists <laughs> so and then compiling the book. Every day of 2009, you would ask or and or well, receive from someone a piece of art. Yeah, that was it wasn't completed exactly. That day, right? I mean, it. Sh- I mean, it, the bottom line is I needed to have an entire year's worth of artwork because the book is it functions as a calendar, and it's also 
um, a kind of collection of of work. So the page is a day, and so it's a day in your calendar. It's um, it's a perpetual calendar, so it applies to any year. And I asked artists to make the work on that day so that it could become the page in the book. So to, to assemble that, yes, I had to find ultimately 365 artists or it's a lot, it's a lot of people and a lot of, and it has to take place over time. It basically is created in real time over yeah, the course of a year. Yeah, it's created in real time, but I think, I think of it as being multi-genre because you didn't know what you were going to get. That's true. Yeah. And yeah, there's text in there. There's mm-hmm. collage, mm-hmm. there's photography, there's film stills. I mean, there's just about everything it's visual true. that you can think of. And that came out of just sort of allowing people like I just gave all the participants a form to work within and you know just letting like putting everything in place and then stepping back and letting the artists take over well and I feel like that's a major concern in your work is that you like to have people interact with it you very much want people to come into what you've already done and play around and rediscover something and and make a new and I think that's really also another kind of riff on genre. Do you know what I mean? Like where there's the, there's whatever you created, mm-hmm. but then there's something they're going to do five steps later that you can't predict. Yeah, and I actually think that's also why I just realized I think that's part of why the book form is so appealing to me. Because as we were talking about earlier with books, like you'll read a book and then you create your own novel in your mind or whatever you imagine your the poem as you imagine it with your associations and i don't i think there's a general there's a tendency to separate that to say like books are like that but art isn't like that because art is an object that you go to look at but you know even that is kind of you know like i mean and i'm not saying anything new but you know you look at a work of art from your point of view you go to the place your eye goes to a different place than another viewer so you are always creating the work as as an audience member as a participant and i'm just sort of trying to make the most of that you know i kind of there's a push pull in my work i think between something that's static that's like an object that's in a room and a thing that you pick up and turn go through and you know it's challenging in some ways to make work that's interactive because it has certain limitations for for you know like you can't have a fragile book in a gallery uh, well, you can. There was a an exhibition that came out of the Open Day book where um, I sought out as many of the original, as much of the original work as I could gather, and we put it up at late Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. And then the book itself, being interactive, was on a pedestal in the middle of the room, and the idea was you come in to see it and you write things in the book. And I mean, there was, it was amazing. I think, were you, Matt, there was a group of people, there was like some tie-in to some CalArts group who came in and did a project hmm. in Lace at that time and they wrote things in it. Matt, Amy, did you steal possibly? the book? Did you steal it? Yeah, I, you yes, the one I've that got, took it? Do you want it back? Amy, ben- <laughs> Amy Bender, Margaret, you may Amy Bender oh wrote God. in the book. Oh, that's who Mar- is like one of Margaret's favorite I writers. I love her. So um, speaking of books, right? Margaret, where can we find this book, Neon Green? You can find Neon Green online and you can pre-order it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Powell's. I highly recommend going to Skylight or whatever your independent bookstore is. Right. And and, getting... and there's a book launch on July 12th. Yeah, there's a July Skylight? 12th launch at Skylight and I'll be interviewed by Pop Rocket friend Guy Branham. Mm-hmm. So that'll it's going to be, be super that's, fun. And that's yeah, Skylight that's... Books here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Skylight Books right. here in Los Angeles, but I'm also going to be doing a tour 
Um, and I'll be hitting a bunch of different cities. I'll be going to Minneapolis, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, New York, awesome. Portland, Seattle. So where can people find dates and stuff? Um, I'm going to post that soon on my website, which is margaretwappler.com. All right. That's great. So the, it's so it's been pretty amazing to work with Unnamed Press, I'm guessing. I mean, it sounds like they're, you, you're going you're gonna to have a great book launch. This is awesome. But tell me about the actual experience of the editing portion, you know, actually working through the text and all that. I just I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. How that process went. Um, the first process was J. Ryan Straddle, who brought my book into Unnamed, um, taking a crack at it first. And so Jay left a bunch of notes. Um, once they had acquired it, Jay and Chris Heiser, who is the publisher and editor there, uh, both took a crack at it and left a bunch of notes that were more macro, more like, OK, fix this scene, fix this kind of overarching plot development that kind of thing. So I went in for a couple months and just did did that on my own, Mm -hmm. no intervention, just me doing it. And uh, we had another like more smaller round, Chris and I together. And that was a a bit more uh, compressed in terms of it happening over like a month of time, like not as much like deep thinking about the book, just being like, okay, let's fix these scenes that are maybe not nailed down yet. And then after that, it's been a pretty traditional uh, process of of copy editing, yeah, sure, and that kind of thing. But it's it's been really rewarding the whole time because both Jay and Chris are really good readers, and they got the book. They just yeah. understood it immediately. And I should say too that my agent Aaron Hoosier early on get, led me through some edits as well, and she really got the book immediately. Like I mean, it's it's when you're writing a book, you just don't know who is going to understand it or care about it or think about it at all. And then you send it out to these strangers and somebody writes back and they 100% get it and get the references that you were talking about. And that was really rewarding. And she helped me accentuate certain aspects of it, especially like yeah. the 90s part. She was really into the 90s aspect. And so some yeah. of the bands that come in and the, and, the, and the kind of teenage life that comes in is really, uh, I, I, I owe a debt to her for that. Well, there's no way to do a good transition here. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll just shift gears entirely. Um, for anyone who's listened to this show uh, ever, uh, you probably heard us talk about Elephant Art Space, which is an artist-run space here in Los Angeles. And David, you are a, what do you guys call it? Oh, uh, we're board? elephants. We're an elephant. You're elephants. <laughs> yeah. You're on the board. You're one of the people who run the spot. Well, Elephant mm-hmm. is a, uh, you know, I can't really speak, I can't, uh, I wasn't there at the beginning. So, and it's legendary, so I wouldn't even begin to try to explain. The very, very bare bones is that um, it was a working studio space uh, in Glasshell Park. um, And at a certain point, there was a front room that was not being put to use. And the group decided, let's make an exhibition space out of it. It's a very, you know, it's like a a typical artist-run space kind of origin story. I was fortunate to, enough to come in um, after Daniel Adair um, left her studio. And so moving into Elephant, one of the joys of being at Elephant, of course, is when you come in, it's not just a studio, you become a participant in an artist-run space. Um, so we do shows uh, on a monthly basis now. Um, we just for the, I think the last three or so shows have Saturdays open. It used to be just openings and by appointment. So it's 
I think, you know, we've, we've, it's kind of growing a bit. We've, um, you know, we program a year in advance, uh, and it's just super exciting to be a part of. And the website's up and running, right? It's up and running and yeah, it's actually my job to keep it up to date. So it's uh, elephantartspace.blogspot.com. Yeah. So everyone should go there. Go uh, check it out. And if you're in town, come by. It's a, it's a really lovely spot. It is like, it is extremely communal feeling, like a community feeling, not communal, but community. And, and you, you know, I think openings are a lot of fun because of the barbecuing. Often we are, people will come to our openings at the end of the art night because. Yeah. It's the final destination for sure. Yeah. 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 Where you have your turkey burger and your sausage. Exactly. And your craft and your beer craft that beer. Quinn has brought. Yeah. yeah. If you're lucky enough to find it. <laughs> and, and then I also should just say that, you know, working with these other artists, sharing the space with them, the opportunity to meet with the artists that we host. And, you know, it's sort of, I've said before that it has, it's like that thing that you miss from graduate school where you get to be in the heat of people working and meeting new people and talking about their work and kind of expanding your experience and and through that it's just i i I hope it goes on forever well margaret wappler and david earl thank you for joining us thank you guys thank you this has been so much fun yeah yeah loved it you've been listening to the people in k-chung 1630 a.m i'm ben white and i'm matthew timmons we're gonna go out with a song by chris cohen from his new album as if apart Uh, But first, we want to remind you that you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can find all our past episodes, and you could leave us a review or a rating if you'd like to as well. We're also hosted by Insert Blanc Press, so you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And we're on Stitcher and SoundCloud and everywhere else uh, you get your podcasts. And by the way, on SoundCloud, we also feature various other recordings from... Uh, past guests and uh, poetry readings and whatnot. So if you're interested in that, you can find that there. Also, uh, find us and like us on Facebook. Yeah, and our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And now we're going to hear the title track from Chris Cohen's new album, As If Apart, released May 6, 2016, on the Captured Tracks label. That was worth that it. Was a good it one. was worth it.
made up of natural. Uh, I've had booze. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Okay.